0: Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street, exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts.
1: From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in New Orleans, we're Out to Lunch with Peter Ashuti, Tulane University Freeman School of Business Professor and Director of the Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rusciutti, welcome to
2: Out to Lunch. If you've been to college, you'll know that although colleges are ostensibly places where students get an education, the teaching staff do not spend a majority of their day teaching. What exactly, you might wonder, do college professors do all day? Well, one thing they do is research. And sometimes that research can turn into more than just an article in an academic journal. Many universities now have a department called Technology Transfer. Folks in the Technology Transfer department take the ideas that professors and researchers have and turn these ideas into commercial products. For example, the Office of Technology Transfer at Tulane University has commercialized a diagnostic test for Lyme disease, an obstetric device that cuts and clamps the umbilical cord, and a mosquito trap among many others. The executive director of the Office of Technology Transfer and Intellectual Property Development at Tulane University is John Christie. John, welcome down to lunch. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. There's an even more specialized approach to technology transfer at LSU, where it is broken into smaller divisions. In Baton Rouge, LSU has a big and very successful tech transfer department. Here in New Orleans, the LSU Health Sciences Center has its own department dedicated to technology transfer. The LSU Health Services Center Office of Technology Transfer and Management commercializes research that comes out of the medical school as well as the departments of nursing, public health, and dentistry. The director of the LSU Health Services Center Office of Technology Transfer and Management is Patrick Reed. Patrick, welcome out to lunch. It's great to be here, Peter. Thank you. John and Patrick, I don't like to have lunch with people that are going to get into a fight. So for that reason, I thought it would be Pretty bad idea to have both of you guys on the same show given that you're both in exactly the same business across the town from each other. But because this is New Orleans and we do things differently here, it turns out that you actually spend more time collaborating than competing. And the reason for that, I believe, is that although we have smart people at our universities coming up with intellectual property and actual products that can be commercialized, what we don't have is an industrial base who you can partner with to manufacture products. So you go out looking for partnerships together. Maybe you can start by explaining that part of the process. If one of you has a great idea for a product, say a piece of surgical equipment from your people at LSU, Patrick, how does it help you and Tulane, John, to team up with Patrick to help him get his product into commerce?
1: Let me take it a step back from the product, Peter, into the research because certainly uh, in the Tulane structure, my office is a part of the Office of Research, just to be really clear about where we start. And so the collaborations between Tulane and LSU and other institutions, um, including government uh, labs and um, private companies, really start with the research level. What are they trying to accomplish in terms of understanding how Ebola works and spreads, or what are the problems in surgery? So it starts at the research level, and those are, those are increasingly collaborations and um, our researchers are really driven to find the best, no matter where they are, that have the applicable skills and, and work together.
3: And I think locally there are a lot of these uh, departments that, that collaborate uh, more organically. Uh, for example, the Louisiana Cancer Research Consortium in the Louisiana Cancer Research Center, which is on Tulane Avenue right across from my building. And you've got both Tulane and LSU Health employees in there you know, working on cancer uh, towards a common goal. So, I mean, it's just easy collaboration, I think, because we're closer. And as you mentioned earlier, it is more of, of an overlap in our research strengths and our interests than it is a competition. So, you know, it helps that that we know each other, we like each other,
1: uh, and and we form those collaborations easily, I think.
3: So it's not like baseball.
2: No, okay. that's uh, (laughs)
1: Not exactly. And and again, to your point about it being New Orleans, um, Patrick and I and plenty of other people at our respective institutions understand that this is New Orleans. It's not Boston. It's not San Diego. If we're going to succeed at the scale we want to, we're going to have to do it together.
3: That's right. I mean, both of our institutions, relatively speaking from a research expenditure standpoint, I mean, we're relatively small. But together, if we can market New Orleans rather than our institutions individually, we're going to bring industry down here in any event. And that's going to benefit both schools and the other uh, institutions in the area as well. So I think that's been a a newer approach maybe, and and we're working together more frequently. Uh, A shameless plug, we've got an event coming up on September 18th at the Cancer Center where Tulane uh, School of Medicine and LSU Health are partnering up. And we're having each of our investigators back to back rotating and we're talking about their oncology research, so cancer, and then infectious disease. And what we're doing is we're trying to make a compelling argument for companies to to spend their travel budget, come down to New Orleans. It's not a difficult sell to come to the city. But if they're going to come down, they can come and see people from both institutions. So you get one location where you've got investigators from both places, and and we really think that that's helping uh, to get these folks down here, where they otherwise might not if I just invited them.
2: And, you know, I've been thinking about what you were saying right there is to get an, uh, a big player to, to move to a city like this. For instance, um, when I was looking, I was getting ready for the show, I was noticing that Minneapolis is a big place for what you do, and that's got to be a function of
3: Medtronic being there, right? Right. Yeah, we have no real anchor tenant, and I think uh maybe we never will and and there are other niches that we can fit uh but but i think the hope would be as we increase this collaboration as we involve other parties as we form these closer relationships with our local economic development groups that all of us working together towards the same goal maybe we do get that anchor tenant down here
2: and i'd like to pick this up from 1980 because that seems to be an important year it's uh before that if you Discovered something on a college campus, and you had federal funding, which just about all these projects do. It
1: the ownership was the federal government. What happened then? Then um, the United States Congress passed what's called the by dole Act, and by Bi was Birch by a Democrat, and Dole was Bob Dole, a Republican from Kansas. So we're talking about a bipartisan agreement. Which tell that to the kids today, and they just laugh at you, <laughs> the science fiction. But um, so it was intended to be a jobs bill. They figured if they put the ownership of the intellectual property locally, with the with the institution that received the, the funding, not the individual, but the institution. So Tulane gets a grant, one of our researchers develops something, Tulane then has the right to go after the patents first. If we choose not to, then the government can own it, but our institutions then own it and we're more motivated. And... and most branches of the government don't want a share of the of the return. If we commercialize something, if we get a drug on the market out of research done at Tulane, the government doesn't want a, a part of that. They want to be informed. We have to provide them annual reports, um, and they want success stories. But but we get to keep the, the proceeds, and we share them with the inventor as income, and a portion goes back into research. So it became a much better deal. We were incentivized at the university and research institution level in a way we weren't before 1980.
3: And before nineteen eighty, I mean when those inventions were reported back to the government and the government had its ownership, they just languished on the shelf. So I mean it was a real understanding that in order for like John said, you have to incentivize us to to go out there, beat the bushes, market these technologies, find the appropriate partner and get these things to the market. And again, all of this ultimately is for public benefit. I mean that's that's our primary mission, is to get these technologies out for that. What if
2: now we get the, the feds out of the picture? What about uh... What about here in the
1: city? Does the uh, does the professor own part of it or the university or how does that part work? So it works that the the faculty members, well we'll start with the easiest scenario, which is you know, full time faculty, i.e. you, we by, have by example. Your intellectual property um, is owned by the university, right? Um, and in the case of an invention, you know, Tulane takes on the the burden and expense and and um, time of Filing the patent applications and pursuing them and getting them allowed in the various jurisdictions, so the the faculty member isn't out of pocket on anything for that, uh, but they assign it over to the university. The university is the legal owner, and then we're the ones who can do, you know, a license agreement to, to get it into development.
3: And that's a condition of
1: most. Uh, uh, that's a condition of employment
3: at almost every academic institution in in the United States. So, assigning your intellectual property to the institution so we could do exactly what John said.
2: Now, if you work together, do you? Um do you
3: ever split revenues? We do if we have joint inventions. So frequently with these academic collaborations, research collaborations, there'll be an investigator over at Tulane, one at LSU Health. They'll jointly develop a technology that's now jointly owned by both LSU Health and Tulane. And we'll do exactly that. We work out beforehand what that split's going to be, which of us is going to take the lead, John's office or mine, and we split the revenue accordingly.
1: In fact, we're working on now, and I've got a question for you for after, so okay. don't let me forget. Yeah, let me know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping
2: something great comes from the show Making deals like on a radio show, I like great. it It's not secret, you know, it's on the air I just wanted to let you know There's, uh, Can you give me some ideas of success stories that have come from uh, either university?
1: Four plus years ago there was a big outbreak of Ebola in Western Africa, which it had never been seen before. You remember this? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a scare and it was going to go everywhere. So one of the problems with um, managing that outbreak was rapid diagnostics, right? There was the, the, the test involved a sophisticated lab, four or five hours worth of work. And if you're trying to and you're, in West, and you're in Sierra Leone or, or um, another Western African country, that's really hard to do. So the first rapid diagnostic test where they could take a couple of drops of blood and know within 15 minutes if you were Ebola positive, uh, that was approved by the U.S. FDA and the World Health Organization came out of a consortium that Tulane led. So that's a big public health impact that we're really very proud of. And the the work they did there continues to be of interest. The, The outbreak died down, but everybody knows it's coming back at some point. So we still have a lot of work in the Ebola field to do.
3: I, I guess on my end, there's, there's lots of examples of technologies that we've gotten out to the market, but I think uh, in the just over six years that I've been here, something I think that I'm proud of and, and what the institution has done is to kind of um, lessen the barriers of entry for faculty to start up companies. Uh, as we were talking about earlier it's difficult to get companies down here and attracted to the technologies in new orleans Home so right. right exactly right so if if that's going to be a problem we've also got to then solve the ability for faculty members to feel like they can on the side have a company and be actively involved in that. And I know that you recently had on your show uh, Paige Miller from Oleander Medical Technologies. And so that's not yet on the market, but it sounds extremely promising. It's this using, using FDA-approved drugs and uh, uh, and medical devices, and I think that that has great promise. And, and they, and, and they'll be the first ones to tell you, have kind of been the trailblazers They've been the trailblazers as we pioneer uh, and work through these policy issues that we've revised over the years to to make this easier for them to do. And
2: speaking of that, we've had a number of guests in this area. One guest that I always got a big kick out of is Joe Lovett over at the Louisiana Fund. And uh, of course, he's taken these ideas and putting it into a kind of a private equity venture venture capital fund. Uh, Is that the way you always go? Or does sometimes the university come up with the money to push it to the next level?
1: The university almost never comes up with the money to push it to the next level, and that's why we need the whole ecosystem of funders. There are some federal programs like SBIR and STTR, if you've never heard of those, but they're intended for a, a small business to work with the research arm of the university. It's usually one of the inventors is a faculty member, and one of the people who's going to start the company is, say, an ex-grad student or postdoctoral student. Um, and so there are federal programs that we don't need to go there, but eventually, I mean, that's a limited pool of money. Then we're going to need to find people... And like Joe, I mean, Joe is a great example. Joe gets it. I mean, because a lot of this by nature is inventive early stage research. So to understand what these, you know, early molecules are good for. It's hard. You need somebody with the right education and understanding. And it's years from getting to the market because most of what each of our institution puts out is biotechnology, right? So it takes a lot of development. It takes um, going through a regulatory process and then getting out there and attracting a market. So it's got to be somebody like Joe or other venture funders who know it's long term and can put in the money. It's very expensive to develop biotechnology.
2: And how long
1: is that timeline? I know
2: it's going to differ from time to time, but it's it 's an FDA approved
1: drug it yeah. could be 12 to 15
3: years a uh, medical device much much shorter, and other technologies that Tulane might deal with, not my campus, uh, even shorter still, but for yeah, pharmaceuticals it 's a long time horizon and then to your question on LSU side, we also don't have uh, an ability to fund our companies. We have proof of concept funds to hopefully fund technologies to attract the companies or to foster a startup. But I think there's a a continuum of investment. You know, you've got your friends, families, and sometimes they add fools in that that category. (laughs) And then you've got your angel network, and I think we're lucky to have, about around the same time I arrived, uh, Mike Eckert came and established the NOLA angel network. And so they provide that good uh, uh, spot between uh, the friends and family SBIR funding and then the venture capitalists, so you've got your angel network. So we, I mean, we really do have the capacity here. Uh, it's just bringing those ideas and getting all the right people lined up, serial entrepreneurs, investors, and everything else interested in our technologies. You're listening to Out to Lunch.
2: I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Patrick Reed from the Office of Technology Management at LSU Health Science Center and John Christie from the Office of Technology Transfer at Tulane University. Now, John and Patrick, this is the part of the show we call your brother-in-law. You're getting ready to leave work after a long day when your phone rings. It's your brother-in-law. Normally, he only calls when he needs a hand to move his aquarium, but this time it's different. This time, he has a great idea for you. For argument's sake, we're going to say that you each have the same brother-in-law. His name is Justin Malayson. He's a graduate of the Berklee School of Music, and he sent us this idea on Facebook to run by you. Justin says, as a musician, the least favorite part of the performance is to tear down the stage after the show is complete. He'd like to see equipment with retractable cables. You would just pull the cable out to the desired length, much like you do with a power cord on a vacuum. Then, when you're ready to wind up the cables, you just tug on the cable to release it, and a locking mechanism takes over, and the cable instantly is wrapped right back into the rack. This would revolutionize the live sound business by allowing for faster setup teardown times for all size acts I mean all the way from a stadium to a to a dive bar and John and Patrick, where do you start with justin 's simple but apparently revolutionary idea for retractable cables for professional sound equipment what 's your um uh, what's your plan for, for looking at a situation like
3: this? So, Peter, first, uh, it, it's probably you know, not a hypothetical example. I've got to tell you, and I'm sure John will, will also admit this, once people actually understand what we do, and that's the difficult part. My wife probably still can't tell you what I do. But once they, they learn that we we work with patents and inventions, everybody's got a fantastic idea, and they want to know what they should do with it. Uh, so first I try to temper their expectations a little bit because, you know, the world's been around a long time and people have done a lot of things. Uh, so, yeah, evaluating that, that potential invention for some uh, novelty and, and whether or not it's not obvious and, and going that route would be a, a first great step because nine times out of ten, uh, things have been done before. They just might not have been sold, marketed, or, you know, out there for public use. Well... You can start with a basic Google search. I mean, we can, we can pluck Google real quick here, but uh, you know, Google search gets the job done pretty well. Literature searches, uh, uh, there are patent databases, and, and Google patents in, indeed is a good one to actually search. But if it's already out there, if the idea is, has been described before, and it's not that different from, from what uh, my brother-in-law is talking about, then, then he may be out of luck.
2: <laughs> no, I think of your answer because you both come from very different backgrounds. You are come from a science background, and uh, and John, you come from a business background. You're Tulane MBA. Um, what's your answer on this same question?
1: Well, so one of the things that that. Directors of tech transfer offices get to do a lot: is uh, say no. You know, we get to we get to let the air out of people's balloons. Oh, we get to nice. tell them their baby is ugly. Right. And so we tend to start with sort of sharp ended questions after this extensive Google search. Um, I might not have to go that far. I could I could just just swear that we have a vacuum cleaner at home that has that exact same feature where <laughs> exactly. right, the cord right. just sucks right in. So I would show Justin the, the, vacuum, va- cleaner. the vacuum cleaner with a retractable cord and say, how is yours substantially different? Because if you can't get intellectual property protection on it like a patent, then you can't protect it and you, can't, you don't have something exclusive. So You've got a commodity, right? So how does he make it something exclusive and not a commodity that somebody can just adapt to a different piece of, um, you know, cabled equipment? That's some good starter kid advice. And then I'd give that to Justin and see how he does. Either he starts crying and goes away and never bothers me again or he takes exception and says, no, no, it's brilliant. You just don't understand it. Do some more work. That's what usually happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's right. They they never take my no for an answer. They take that as sort of the starting point. They're going to show me how wrong and, and, you know, for a guy with a two-lane NBA, why isn't he smarter is what they ask themselves a lot. So they go back and do their homework and and sharpen the idea. Sometimes they just didn't tell us the right part of the idea, you know. So with Justin, we'd probably have to challenge him by, you know, I'm not actually going to bring the vacuum cleaner into the office, but you know, I mean, I'll, I'll explain it to him. Maybe he needs a PowerPoint and a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> right, that right, would be right. uh,
2: they you know, one of the things- Well, that and that then was, he'll go to our
3: boss next and say, this oh, guy sure. doesn't get it, you know. You, you, need to, <laughs> you need to tell him that he's missing out here.
2: <laughs> you know, one thing I think people would be surprised at is that the field you're in, um, the folks that are coming up with these great inventions aren't necessarily, first of all, motivated by money as much as we would think. And, uh, and you know, I would say, just haven't been on campus forever, 30 years ago there were certain people that felt that commercializing it would sort of taint their idea. So how do you, how do you turn them around?
1: So partly that's changed you know, certainly across the U.S., right? I mean, 15 years ago, the NIH did not really want you focusing on commercializing your results. Now they have entire programs, and this is part of their big picture, is that, you know, the research should be translated. And so when it starts with your major funding agencies, when they say, we want a product out of this, when you've got um, the deep pockets of the of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know if you enter an agreement with the Gates Foundation to do research, you better have a plan for what's going to come out of it. That you have to. It's required. And if you've got a bunch of parties in those Gates Foundation things, you have to have a, a, an agreement in advance how you're all going to deal with IP, the intellectual property that comes up, etc. So when you've got the major funders saying we want to see results that you know we can apply, they're not they're not. Discriminate against basic research. We still do the sort of nature of the universe stuff, but if it's a project that looks like it's going to have an outcome, now they're being compelled at a, at a higher level than us, and we just have to be ready to take the next step with them and explain how it works and, and not get in their way. John and Patrick, if each of us
2: listening to this conversation had a dollar for every great idea we've had, uh, we'd probably each have about 10 bucks. <laughs> It's It's one thing to think you've got a great idea. It's another thing to actually have a great idea but it's something of a whole other magnitude to turn an idea into an invention that makes money uh, what you guys are pulling off is really impressive you're making a real contribution to education to science to the economy and to the new orleans community it's been great to meet you and thank you both for taking the time today to join me and out to lunch Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been John Christie, Executive Director of the Office of Technology Transfer and Intellectual Property Development at Tulane University, and Patrick Reed, Director of the LSU Health Services Center, Office of Technology Transfer Management. You can find out more about John and Patrick's great ideas by following the links on our website itsneworleans.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. You can listen to this show and to past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from the show on itsneworleans.com and It's New Orleans' Facebook page. The photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at LaFleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9. FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's
0: Palace for more business, New Orleans-style, on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock-Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit hancockwhitney.com COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street, Exceptional Women's and Children's Clothes and Gifts. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour Podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.